Hi there. Welcome back to Destination USA from Index Ventures, a series that explores how Europe's leading entrepreneurs and tech operators expanded their businesses to the US. If you talk to people in the US, you're just amazed. Every candidate seems incredible. This week, Index's VP Insights, Dominic Jackson, speaks with Calibra founder, Felix van der Maale. Calibra builds data intelligence cloud products and was founded in Brussels in 2008 by Felix and his three co-founders. It has now become one of Europe's most successful software companies with over 700 employees globally. Half the workforce and almost all the leadership is now in the US. Engineering, however, remains almost entirely in Europe. Who would ever want to join a small Belgian company that's 10 people? You have zero name, you have zero brand, nobody knows you, you have zero leverage. Dominic and Felix covered the end-to-end story of how Calibra succeeded in the US, talking about risk-taking, finding and following your first customers, and how a Belgian team managed to close a million-dollar deal in New York over the phone. Here we go. So, Felix, welcome to the Destination USA podcast. And I'm thrilled that you're able to join us today. Likewise. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I'd like to take you back to the beginning in 2007. As I understand it, you graduated with a master's in computer science from universities in Brussels and Nantes. But within less than a year, you founded Calibra. And I'm pretty sure that entrepreneurship wasn't an obvious choice of career in Europe back then. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's an interesting story. So uh, I finished at the time, I think 2006, my master's in computer science. Um, I wanted to, I wasn't ready to go to work, so to speak. So I wanted to study uh, more, ideally study abroad. So I did another master's in software engineering. Half year I spent in France and Nantes. And half year I actually spent in Argentina. And that's really where I was thinking, okay, what do I want to do next? And in my mind, there were like three obvious, obvious answers given where I came from. One, I could uh, continue the research I was doing at university, so start my PhD. Two, I could become a consultant and work at one of the big fours. Or I could go work at a bank at a software engineer. In my mind, these were the the three options. None of those really sounded very exciting to me. And so when I was in Argentina, I started to think, and I was actually reading a book called uh, Founders at Work. Uh, I highly recommend the book. It's it's a bit old now, but really good. It introduced me to this whole notion around startups, Silicon Valley, you know, this was uh, before Twitter, before Facebook, but I was reading these stories and in my youthful, I think, ignorance and naivety, I think, I, I said, well, if, if, they, if those entrepreneurs can do it, why shouldn't I just try? And so the only <laughs> way in my mind that I could do this, I, for somehow I, I, could, I didn't make the connection that I could maybe like move to the US and, and join a startup there. In Belgium at the time, there weren't any companies, any, any startups in that sense. Europe, very little. You had like Skype and, and business objects and, and like MySQL, but again, very little, very different today. And so the only way I could actually get there in my mind was actually to start a company myself because I wanted to work in that kind of high-paced, exciting, big vision uh, kind of environment. And that's when I started wor- working and, and, and talking to my co-founders who were all doing their research at the university around semantic technology at the time. And that's really how it, uh, it started. So maybe not kind of textbook, uh, we wanted to start a company to kind of build the environment that I was really excited about, more so than uh, than solve a real problem, which ultimately, of course, we uh, we got to. But that's ultimately how Colibra uh, got started. What did your family and friends think? Yeah, you know, were they skeptical or supportive of that decision back then? Yeah, I I, um, I think they were all very supportive. 
And it's interesting because you often talk about like entrepreneurship and startup companies as risk, risky. But in my mind, I never, I never really perceived that risk. I mean, I had, I had two computer science degrees. I had another degree in, uh, in a kind of an MBA in, in economics and management. So in my mind, I would, I would find a job anyway. So I had, in a sense, job security, which is an enormous amount of, um, kind of risk mitigation. So I said, okay, if it doesn't work out, the next day I'm going to have a job. So it's not really that risky. I'm I'm 23 years old. I don't have a house. I don't have a family. I don't really have any kind of responsibility. So the, the risk level was always very, very relative. It's just opportunity, opportunity cost and opportunity risk. But I never actually thought about it that much. I never thought of myself actually as taking a lot of risks. Were you thinking about the US back then? I mean, I mean, did you appreciate that the US would be your most important market eventually? Or were you thinking, oh, this is you know, a Belgian leader or a European leader in the category? No, we were thinking global from the beginning. So we were very, very ambitious uh, from the beginning. But it's really once we got started and kind of found initial product market fit, we, we quickly realized that our target customers, there were very few of those in Belgium. And, and I think it's one of the things that we did really, really well <clears throat> is that uh, what we did at the time, again, around data, data governance was very different than today. Most people didn't understand what it was or why it was important. So very quickly, we realized that we needed to find the people that understood what we did, why it was important, and they were actually looking for a solution like that. We couldn't waste our time trying to convince people that what we did was important. And so as we looked for that very small set of people, it was a small set of people at the time, so we had to almost look internationally from the very beginning because that set would be even way too small if we just look in Belgium or look at, look at Europe. And then when we actually started um, kind of finding those people, Actually, the, the, the kind of addressable market, it was easier for us to find those people in the US than it was in Europe because we did a lot of trade shows. That's where we found the people that were like-minded. And that's kind of how we found our first, first leads, first opportunities were often, often US, US companies. So it's really, uh, so I think there's two things. One, from the very beginning, we realized we have to think global. And then the second aspect, where do we find the people that care about what we do and how can we best address them? Actually, most of those opportunities came from the U.S. So we followed our customers, and that's really why we we, we were focused on the U.S. from the very beginning. That's, that's really interesting. But at the same time, as I understand it, your very earliest test customers were in Europe. You know, and, and I'm just really curious to understand, you know, when was that? You know, how did you convince them to take a chance on you? And did you, at that point, you know, are we talking, did you have much of a product at that point to demonstrate? Yeah, it's in the very beginning, basically, we really had to find our product market fit. And it really goes back to kind of the origin story where we, we started with the goal of building a company more so than solving a very particular problem. We had very interesting technology coming from the university around semantics, but we had to find a problem that was really compelling for customers that we, we, we wanted to solve. And like basically, it took us a year, the first 12 months. Uh, we didn't sell, sell anything. And after 12 months, we made the decision to say, okay, this isn't working. Like we were focused on data integration at the time. Customers don't, don't care about that uh, sufficiently. And then we shifted to data governance with the financial crisis, of course, that happened in 2008, just the time we started, actually helped us find a product market fit. Suddenly all of the large banks uh, required data governance. The first two, three customers were in Belgium, were almost more like consulting, quasi consulting companies where we've actually built the software and kind of a strong collaboration. And, and then it's, it's when we found product market fit, especially the, in the large banks. And so that was mostly in London and, and New York. And so London, we could easily do from Brussels, just a lot of travel. And then of course, New York, we were traveling uh, over and back all the time to the US where we found the most traction initially with the product. And of course the product evolved for very much uh, in those first uh, couple of years. 
Really interesting. Were they were they paying anything, or as you said, it was more on that consulting model? We never did anything for free, uh, and I think that's, that's a good thing. I think it's it's good to ask money because otherwise people people say if it's for free, but you're you're not really testing if it is real value. It's only when people want to pay for it. So the first two two deals were more kind of consulting, uh, but actually it helped us kind of find again uh, the problem we wanted to solve. And then after that, after after that, uh, very quickly we started to charge for uh, for our product. It was again not something you see right now. It was perpetual software uh, on premise, uh, kind of extinct extinct by now. Uh, but that's how we how we got started, and we, we we charged money from it right away for something that we basically took was which was open source software like a wiki like a wiki wiki technology which we kind of build a small kind of layer and module on top. But that's what we used to kind of find a product market fit. And actually, the, the fact that customers wanted to pay for that something that was quasi free for us was a really strong signal that we had something that was that was good that we had to double down on. And how were you funding Calibra in those? In that early period, then you obviously had some revenue, as you said, from customers. But uh, did you take external funding, and and if so, you know how much or at what point, and how did you go about that again back in Europe in those days? Yeah, it was very different. If if I look at the the seed and Series A rounds right now, it's just a very different time. So we actually raised about eight hundred thousand euros in two thousand eight, in the very beginning, as a seed round, which was at the time. For kind of twenty year old, twenty year olds, quite a bit of money, which was a good thing because clearly we needed the money kind of to, to help us kind of bridge that gap, find a product market fit. And then for a Series A, we raised we raised a million a million euros uh, from Nuyon, a, a Dutch uh, venture firm, and that was basically it for a long time. And based on that, we actually got the profitability. We grew the company to over ten million euros in, in revenue. Again, perpetual software, so high upfront fees, which helped, of course. We grew that to profitability. We're growing over 200%. And I remember kind of visiting Sand Hill Roads in the Valley. And I thought I was really proud of the fact that we were growing that quickly and profitable. I never expected that to be like a, a negative <laughs> with, with a lot of the VCs. Um, but so we, we, we were very, very frugal. Every dollar we kind of split in half. Every time, like I said, we were targeting US already. We were staying in the cheapest Airbnbs, sharing rooms all the time. So we really, because we had to, and that's kind of part of our DNA. And it's still, I think we've never actually shifted to kind of spending without limits. It's always part of, okay, we have to spend kind of thoughtfully. Um, and I was, that was because of the very beginning. We absolutely had to. It's very difficult to raise money in the very beginning. Nobody understood what we did, a very different environment. And it's only when we really found product market fit that we then, um, that it became easier. And then we raised a large Series B from, uh, from Index. Do you think Calibra could have grown faster or would, could have been even more successful if you had had more cash back then, or yeah, you know, as you're also talking to the how central this idea of yeah being frugal and careful with money still is to you. Actually, I don't think so. I think the opposite. If it would have raised more money sooner, I don't think Kuliba would exist today. Uh, funnily enough, because when you raise a lot of money, it creates a certain expectation. You have to spend it, right? You have to invest in growth, and 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 I really believe before you find product market fit. Money isn't going to help you find product market fit. Money is important because it buys you time. So you need time, but you can't uh, kind of spend your way in, into product market fit, right? And so us being frugal helped us find enough time to actually find product market fit. It puts constraints on top of the business. So you have to be super focused, which I think is incredibly important in the beginning. So thanks, I think it's actually a risk of raising too much money too early. Now, of course, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't raise more than a million dollars. Times are, are slightly different now, but... I think from a time perspective, money is really important, but you have to stay really disciplined to not spend too much until you find product market fit. 
Uh, and so I think if we actually would have raised more money, uh, there would be more pressure, invest more. I think we actually would have run out of money before we had enough proof points in the business that we were ready, ready to raise another round. So I think that's a, a really important um, aspect. Now, once you find product market fit, what I was surprised about that once you start to scale, that requires a lot of money. <laughs> it requires a lot more money than I ever thought. I never thought we would have raised, we would raise more than 300 million. Um, and so that was the, the, the opposite of the surprise. But I think that's a really important um, kind of crossroads in, in, in the life of a company. I think it's a really, really yeah, a lot of truth in what you said about that difference between before and after you reach product market fit truly, and you're properly into scaling and the funding to go with it. So you you then started selling to the US remotely, and you touched on this a bit earlier, but I'd love to hear more about that story. And again, it's just how did you make those initial sales with those inbound or outbound leads? And did you do any market or competitor research in the US before you started selling? Or did it just happen organically? Yeah, it's, it's very tactically. It, it was um, like you start a company, you're excited and you sit on your desk and say, okay, what now? Now you've got to find customers. <laughs> I don't know anybody. Like I hadn't worked before, zero network. Like how do you start doing that? And again, it goes back to how do we find that group of people that really cares about what we do? Because again, you don't like time is the enemy. You don't have time to convince people. It's an important problem to be solved. You have to find that right audience that cares about what you do. And again, at the time, things have changed. But at the time for us, where we found that audience were at trade shows about data management, right? And that's where the people that cared about what we do were. And so it was very uh, kind of tactical in the sense that we, we started to go to these trade shows, sponsor those trade shows, had our little booths. And that was the only marketing we did for a very long time. Most of those trade shows were in the US. And so we just traveled there, we stayed there for a couple of days and then tried to book meetings in those times. So we probably went to the US for like two weeks, three weeks. We had a trade show for a couple of days. And then before that, tried to get a couple of meetings. After that, tried to get a couple of meetings. And I went back to Belgium. And then three weeks after, did the same thing over and over again. And so that's really how we did it. That's how we found our first US customer. Uh, I remember NetApp. They were almost made the decision to go with one of those big, large incumbent data management vendors. We met them at a trade show. They were really excited about what we were doing. We went back to Belgium. And then we closed the whole deal uh, just over the phone from Belgium. Wow. Right? And again, inside sales at the time was very different. Like it wasn't that... Like the whole, that, that whole motion, that engine didn't really exist. It was very much the enterprise sales, perpetual software on-premise. But we just did it like through trade shows, meet people, then go back and, do, and, and finish the, the deal over the phone. That's how we got, I would say, the first around 10 deals. Uh, I did, we, we did our first million-dollar deal like that with a big insurance company in, in, uh, in New York. And that's when we decided, well, actually, we really believe that presence creates opportunity. Just being able to be where those customers are, easier to book meetings. You don't have to say, well, actually, uh, we can book a meeting next time in the US four weeks from now. Just everything becomes so, so long. Uh, and so that's what, that's what ultimately what, what led us to New York, not, not San Francisco, not Boston at the time. We just followed our customers. And most of our customers, again, product market and financial services were in New York. And that's how we set up a small sales office in New York. Our first founder moved to New York. And that's how, how, uh, how presence in the US uh, grew. Do you think it made a difference being European in terms of trying to sell to major US financial companies or you didn't find that a barrier at all? I don't think so. No. I mean, what, what matters in the beginning and people, these organizations, they know you're very small. Like we're like a 15 person startup selling to the largest banks in the world, beating IBM and, and the likes. You need credibility. They need to know that you're an expert in your field. And two, you need, they need to know that you're going to do everything, <laughs> everything in your powers to make them successful. And so I remember NetApp was our first customer in San Francisco. Uh, of course, there were a nine-hour difference with Belgium, 
but we were on the phone with them well into the night every single day, probably in the beginning, because as you can imagine, there were a couple of product challenges uh, for early product, but we just in the night over the phone, we were just uh, on the phone with them all the time just to make it, to make it work. And I think that that worked well, and and we built really strong relationships uh, uh, through that model. It sounds like as well you were really, you know, you were obviously finding through that approach. You're finding the early adopters very much, so people are going to be open to that, looking to experiment, looking to innovate as well. So that was quite a sort of highly technical sale, which then you know sort of and, and presumably it was very driven by you and your co-founders. You know, at, at that point, uh, you didn't have. Or did you, had you got the beginnings of a sales team at that point? Not really. In the beginning, it was all uh, the founders. We, we Like Benny, which was our VP sales, joined us as, as kind of a, a quasi-founder a year in. So it was Benny, Stan, or other co-founder, myself, and, and a few kind of technical pre-sales, very early employees. And, and because at the beginning, it's really, a, it's an art, not a science. The sales process, you have to learn all the time. And so the, the founding team, you have to just constantly learn what are, what are the messaging, what is resonating, what is not resonating. You constantly adjust, you constantly iterate. And, and so again, like hiring a big sales team in the beginning, I think is, is difficult because making that scale is actually hard. You have to do it yourself. You have to find kind of the art of what, what works, what doesn't. And it takes some time to, to build something that's replicatable. And so then that's only after a time when you really found that product market fit, then, then you're ready to start hiring a sales team. Because, and then even, and even then, I think as a founder being very close, uh, it's really important to train those salespeople of how to actually present it. That's why I'm a strong believer that if you're moving to the US, one of your founders or at least early employees like quasi-founders needs to move because they need to know kind of the arts and that sell, especially if it's a new category. You can't just hire salespeople and expect them to be able to sell it. I've seen that not work many, many times, and I think that's really important. So yeah, I, I think that that's a, a, absolutely like a, a non-scalable way, but that, that's how it needs to, needs to be done in the beginning. Yeah. And you, you mentioned you then did the switch, right? So then you switched from that remote selling conferences, et cetera, to opening US office. And yeah, you sort of alluded to, you know, it was, it was Stain and Peter, wasn't it, who, who moved to the US as part of that. So tell us a bit then what, what happened at that point. Yeah, so, so Stain was the first one to move kind of full time. Um, and we had, a, again, on the cheap, a very small WeWork office. Uh, that, that's in, in New York, that's how, how we did it. And then Benny, or VP Sales, was the second one to kind of move full time. Of course, still a lot of travel. I, I kept going uh, back and forth uh, all the time. But that's how we, how we got started. And we, we hired a couple of people, I think our first two, two three sales reps. Um, again, hiring in the US as Europeans in the beginning was, was very hard. Uh, and there's a lot of stories there as well. But that, that's how, how we started. And then that grew, we got more customers in the US. We, we saw a lot of traction actually. Pretty quickly, the majority of our revenue uh, came from the US, as it still is uh, today. Um, and, and that's how ultimately our, our, our small kind of New York WeWork office became our operational uh, HQ as it is today. Can you tell us more about when you were doing your first early sales hires then? Yeah, it, it's, it's really difficult for a number of reasons. One, you're a small Belgian company. Like who would ever want to join a small Belgian company that's 10 people in a WeWork office? Like it, one, it attracts a certain type of people already. There's, you have zero name, you have zero brand, nobody knows you, you have zero leverage, um, you don't know any recruiters, you just don't know where to go, you have zero network. It's really, like, if, if you like, pragmatically, you, you're there in your rework office, like, who do you actually call? You don't know, uh, and it, it's really hard. Uh, you don't have any leverage. And then three, just culturally, it's very different. If, if you talk to, again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> it's a bit more cliche, but there's some truth in it. If you talk to people in the US, you're just amazed. Every candidate seems incredible. 
like you're just blown away by the experience and expertise and you think they're going to change the world and you're so amazed. And so every candidate looks like a fantastic candidate. And, and, and the reality is that's, of course, not, not the case. But you have to learn that because just the way the interaction is very, very different. I had like a question I used to ask people like on a scale from zero to 10, how, how, how strong would you rate yourself? And more importantly, why? And in Europe, I typically got the answer like a seven, an eight, a nine. Like I could do this better. I could do that better. In the US, I consistently got scores over 10. Like I'm a 12 on 10. Or I'm a 20 on 10 because I'm just incredible. There's nothing, nothing um, kind of uh, that I can do better. So it's just a very different way. And you have, to, you have to adjust, right? And so I think we did a lot of mishires. It was very hard. And that's really where when you really make the leap and start growing in the US, having a partner, like an investor, like we had Index to help you with that, to help you with intros, recruiters and so you actually become more important for these recruiters right but through the kind of the, the the vc relationship becomes so important and then once you start hiring leaders in the us local leaders that can help you with the recruiting and starting to build that executive team becomes super super important well that's that's very kind of you because yeah it was like 2015 when uh, yes yep. yeah index led the series your series b right yes. so what determined like that round's timing size Yes, it was an interesting time. We really were at a, at a crossroads. Like I said, we only raised about 2 million euros. So I owned a, a big part of the company. We were profitable, so hadn't didn't have to do anything. We actually had some acquisition interest as well. Uh, so for us, it was really like, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to potentially sell the company or do we do we want to go really big and do we see it as a real opportunity here? And of course, uh, ultimately what happened, we said, look, we have this incredible opportunity. You have to kind of be honest with yourself. There's a whole bunch of, uh, luck that and timing luck that goes with this. And so we have this opportunity now. I don't know if it's ever going to come again. Let, let's try to build a really big company. And we've really made that decision at the time. Let's say, let's, let's try to really build a great company scale in the US. And so we need a partner that can help us do that. And so for us, it was really important that we had somebody who understood kind of the, the European DNA heritage, kind of authenticity that's still kind of part of our DNA today. But of course, could also help us scale in, in the US because we knew that's where the, the biggest part of the market was. And so that, that was, of course, what really attracted us in, at, at Index that could really help us on both fronts and that really helped us scale that in the US. And that's when we decided, okay, let's, let's, let's raise a bigger round. Uh, with hindsight, I think the, the right property was, was even too, 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 uh, too small. Um, and again, it's interesting because we are so used to kind of going that far with very little money. But then once you start scaling in the US, it was, it was amazing to me how expensive things were. Of course, New York is a very expensive city. I think that, that's another aspect um, about moving to the US as one of the founders or the founding team moves to the US. I think just the, the personal side of things, like if you move yourself, if you move with your family, these are really kind of life impacting changes. And of course, New York is a very different city than, than Brussels was for us, like just from an expense perspective. And again, having a venture capital firm uh, as a partner, having raised a bigger round, potentially some, um, some secondary, that I think that's really helpful because it gives you some, uh, some, some security and some, some um, comfort. Because like Stan, who moved before that, it was a very difficult year for him. Like we had zero money. We were paying us low Belgium salaries, which frankly is, is, uh, is kind of inhumane in, in New York. But that's what we needed to do. And so it was, it's a really like a personal impact that, of course, impacts the company as well. So again, what, when you make that move, also think about the personal impact and make sure you have a partner that, can, that helps you raise a, a bigger round where you can pay yourself kind of more market, uh, market salaries, because otherwise it's going to only be harder. Absolutely agree. Uh, totally. And hear that from a, a number of other founders as well. I mean, were there, were there any other turning points? So that was, there was the Series B fundraise, as you said. Were there any other 
early turning points in the US that helped you establish yourself, either on the hiring side or on the customer side? Uh, yeah, any particular breakthroughs? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. So on the customer side, we, we got our first kind of product market fit in financial services. We started to do bigger deals and that grew, that, that really kind of fueled our growth. We started to see more and more traction outside of financial services as well across every every sector. So just the importance of data, there's massive tailwinds that we're, we're able to, to ride and of course continue to do so. And so that really helped us help to scale. Uh, on the personal front for me personally, on 2015, just after we did our uh, we did the round with Index, I decided to move as well to the US. At the time, I was still running product management. So that's why I was on an engineering team, as you said in the beginning. At the time, it was 100% Belgium and Poland. So I was going back and forth all the time. That's when I decided to, uh, to move to the US. And so as a CEO, founder, your role definitely changes as well. And so 2015, 2016, when we decided to say, to say okay, now we want to scale, um, I think that's a really pivotal moment in, in the company scale as well, where the way I think about it, your, your transition from a founder-led company to more of an executive-led company. And of course, founders continue to be incredibly important, uh, but you really need to build at a certain point in time your executive team, your management team, because that, that's a real constraint. I see if you don't do that, I don't think you're going to continue to grow. I think you're going to flatten out. And, and there's some interesting actually data on that. And I think that's a really important and difficult transition you have to make, especially as a founder. You have to make difficult decisions. You have to bring on board people that you don't know, uh, that of course has so much more experience. There's always a level of anxiety and uncertainty around that. You're afraid that the culture is going to change. It's going to become more corporate. So there's a lot of kind of things you have to work through, but I think it's absolutely critical that you do that. And so that was actually one of, I think, my most difficult years in 2015, 2016 to make that transition from founder-driven to executive-driven. And so as a CEO, your role changes quite a bit. Like at the time, 2015, I wasn't responsible for anything anymore directly. I was just managing the team. And again, you have to adjust your own role really well. And I think on that, like one of the best decisions I've made at the time was to hire a head of people, a head of HR, a chief people officer, really early in that process, uh, Charlotte. And I think that really helped us helped us in that transition uh, to really build the executive team. Um, and, and we made the decision to build that team in, in, the, in New York. And so that's why New York became our operational HQ. And that's again where you have different models of, of kind of European companies move to the US, some split it. And it's like the executives is split between Europe and the US, also depending where the founders are. Some, some companies leave their executive team in Europe and, and just have sales teams in the US. We made the decision to really build the executive team in the US. And so that's where the operational headquarter moved. And again, you can imagine that that has change management impact on the people that, that are still in Europe. They see the change. It becomes more American. So there's a lot of cultural change that you have to manage through as well. So there's a lot of aspects that kind of come with that, that transition. I just want to just go back a little bit, you know, rewind a little bit to your decision to relocate to the US. And you know, what, what enabled that since you didn't go out initially? What changed for you personally to A, enable you and B, you, you know, perhaps make you feel like require you to make that move to the US? Yeah, it's a it's a funny story. It's, it's a, so I was doing going back and forth in New York, Belgium every other week or so, like really sp- splitting my time 50, 50, even 60, 40, probably 60 percent um, US, but still living in Belgium. So I was jet lagged all the time. And it takes uh, everybody who's done that. I know it takes a, it takes a real toll on your life. And interestingly, I was um, I just started dating my now wife at, at the time. Uh, and so that's why in my, in my mind, I, I like, it wasn't really an option for me to really move. But I remember I was taking a long walk and she told me like, Felix, what are you still doing in Belgium? Like you should be in New York. That's where, you, that's where the business is. That's where the opportunity is. 
that's where you should be. Uh, we're only dating for like three months. So I feel like, well, well I don't want to, I don't want to make that move now. But she was supportive. So actually, she actually like gave me the, the final little push to say, well, actually this makes sense. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't actually talked with, uh, with Jan or a partner at Index um, about me moving. It wasn't part of the, of the round. So we're talking to some other venture capitalists um, that actually required me to move, but that was never a, a kind of a requirement from, from Index. But of course they were very, very supportive. And so that's when, I actually made that uh, made that decision to move. I started to hire. Um, we hired somebody to run product management. I think it was it was the right it was the right definitely the right decision because it allowed me to actually build the executive team in the in the US. But it was a, a big decision, especially for the for the whole team, because it was a, a clear signal that kind of the uh, the operational HQ was gonna was going to become uh, was going to become New York. How has it changed things for you personally then as well, other than? being less jet lagged but how, was it was it hard to make the transition or was it a phew this is much easier now that I've done it sort of feeling it was I mean uh, uh, ultimately it was was easy like we got married really quickly we've got two kids now so things things moved really really Congrats. really quickly <laughs> but uh, thank you but um but again that that's what I meant with the, the, the personal almost sacrifice right it's like visas as, as a real problem. Like my wife, now wife, couldn't work. We weren't married, so she wasn't allowed to work. She couldn't get a visa. Like, there's a lot of things to work through. And it, it can really um, be difficult, like personally, to, to actually make that transition. Like I said, it's a new city. You don't, there's no family. There's no friends. Uh, if, you, if you build your family, there's a lot less help. It's more expensive. You don't know anything. So I think that it, it, it brings like a personal tax that you can't underestimate. Uh, and again, that's why it, it's important to have partners that are supportive um, that, uh, in that, uh, but it's not to be underestimated. I think every situation, of course, is unique, uh, but don't underestimate the personal uh, impact of of making a, a move a move like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and you you're talking about your leadership team, and you, you mentioned you know Jarleth, your chief people officer, as 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 you know one of one of those sort of key key hires in your leadership team. And I'm curious because obviously Jarleth was uh, you know originally you know Irish and uh, by birth. And did you find with your leadership team being a European-born company and a European founder and founding team, you know, were the types of, did you think your exec team, which is now obviously all in the US, does it look slightly different in flavor or makeup of people compared to what a maybe a pure US-born and bred software company might look like? It's interesting. It's inter- I thought about it myself, and I, d- I don't have any like real academic analysis or like comparatively. But if you think about now, our, our CMO is originally French, of course, been in the US for a very long time. To your point, Jod has been originally Irish, worked in Europe, uh, uh, but worked in the US for a long time. We have our CFO is Canadian, uh, our CRO is Canadian, uh, and so actually, I think, and of course, we have a number of kind of US uh, nationals or, or, or board people here. Uh, so it's interesting. It's, it's I think the culture. I think is different. I think it's a low ego, low ego culture, uh, a lot of humility, a lot of respect, a lot of openness, a lot of transparency. And I think that's, it still goes back to kind of our origin, that kind of European, Belgium kind of DNA, that authenticity, which I think is a really important aspect that you have to stay true to. I think it's reflected in our, in our leadership, team, uh, leadership team as well. Mm, that's fascinating. And I mean, if you were doing this today, is that, do you think it would be different if you were a, you know, European founder of an enterprise SaaS business today, do you think you'd sort of end up following a similar sort of model to what you have at Calibra in terms of that pivoting the leadership team to the US and 
you know, presumably sales would anyway, because in enterprise SaaS, it's still so US dominated. That's a good question. I don't think there's one playbook. I think there's multiple playbooks and every situation is unique. I think today is we're a different environment than we were 10 years ago. I think there's more talent in Europe that has scaled. I think that was the biggest gap for us. Like how, where, especially in Belgium, we just couldn't find any talent that has hired a hundred people a month and, and grew to a thousand people and, and raised and like had that high growth. And then that's any, and any kind of executive hire, having somebody who's been through high growth is, is really important. Uh, because that's that's really unique, and that's a that's a skill that you wanna that you wanna add to the team. Uh, and there just weren't a lot of companies that we could hire from that that in Europe at the time. I think now it's different. There's a lot more kind of European successes. You mentioned Daniel. I mean, Spotify is always a, a big one, but there's many, many more. So it, today, I think I, I still think like enterprise SaaS. I'm a believer. I think enterprise SaaS companies are our markets are one in the US. That's really what matters. Like, uh, who's going to be the leader in the market? That that's who is. And I actually, see a lot of some examples in, in Europe as well. European companies think about UiPad, Celonis, and a couple of others that again started in the US, uh, in Europe, but really kind of scaled in the US and became those 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 market leaders in the US. And I still believe that's going to happen. And so you have to be here. Do you have to put your whole team here? I think there's there's an option to kind of split it, where you kind of split maybe engineering and so on. I think good engineering more engineering leadership as well now in Europe that has seen scale. So probably there's more options for you to um, to split it between Europe and the US. I think that comes with its own challenges, but I think that there's definitely more than than, than, than one playbook. And, and, and just lastly, I'm just curious, like how the last, obviously the, you know, the strange last for 14, 15 months that we've had globally, how's, how's that affected Calibra, your market, your culture? Yeah, it's been a very interesting uh, 18 months, uh, to say the, to say the least. And so they, actually for Colibri, there was two things that come together. Um, of course, there was the, the pandemic and all the challenges there, and I'll get to that. But the other thing that I believe in, if you think about the company journey, almost like there's a number of phases, but like there's two big categories, almost like chapter one and chapter two, if you, if you think. Like our first chapter was to go from zero to 100 million, and there's different phases there. And, and we've actually, we've turned that quarter now um, two years ago. So now we're actually starting a new chapter to go from 100 million kind of to that next that next phase. And again, the first chapter is all about prove and build, like prove you have something, get your product market fit, start early scaling, building. And our second chapter is all about build and scale. And again, I, I talked about kind of iterating, technical depth, like it requires a different, uh, certain differences. And so you have to, it's more about more structure, more, more, a bit more process. Like we, internally, we talk about it in the beginning, you're a, a pirate ship. Uh, the only thing that counts is survival, like just cash is the only thing that matters, right? And anything else goes, so to speak. But you can't like have a pirate ship with a thousand pirates. That's not going to end well. So you have to evolve and you have to become much more like a Navy, which again, where you want to have, have close teams with ownership, agility, moving fast, but a bit more structure, a bit more discipline. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. You're going to grind to a halt. And so that transition is, is really, again, a challenge, uh, that change. And so now we're on that second chapter. So there's a, cha- a bit of change there. And then, of course, that has in combination with, of course, COVID, where we can't see each other anymore. Like one of the, the, the things I love to do the most was actually visit all of our offices to meet all of all of uh, everyone in person. Uh, all of those things become harder. Managing change when you can't actually have in-person conversations, it just becomes becomes harder. So we've been very internally focused, really focusing on communication, um, doing whatever we can to make it as as kind of to be as supportive as we can as an as an employer it becomes really important always going back to our culture, our values, uh, that authenticity uh, b- remains kind of the foundation of everything that we do. 
And then you have to kind of manage through that through that change. And we're seeing, I mean, we're of course seeing the market very, very different now than we, we saw six or nine months ago. Um, so we're really excited about the future. But it's, it's definitely been a, a, a difficult year to just manage through that change and, and during a time where you can't meet people in person and everything is disconnected. I haven't I haven't met a couple of my of, of my executive team members yet in person. I just met them over Zoom, which I could never have imagined uh, 12 months ago, but it, it's working. It's working well. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I think that the, some of the stories and uh, context you're giving there are very familiar with other founders. Well, I, I, I don't know if there's any like parting words that you would give. Yeah, I, I think I think there's multiple playbooks and every every company is unique. Every situation is unique. So I don't think there's necessarily one playbook. My, my takeaway is I think having that conviction and, and, and confidence and, and, and big vision is really important. But and that's almost contradictory, but but also having the humility to know what you don't know and always be learning and always kind of that whole growth mindset. I'm a really big believer, like the ability to constantly be learning, understanding the why, surround yourself with good people, um, low ego, constantly ask yourself what you could be doing different, like constantly reinventing yourself. I think as a CEO found this probably the most important thing that you can do because again the playbooks today are different than they were three years ago are different than they are six years ago every playbook is unique so how do you how do you make sure you find the best playbook for you and you can only do that if, if you look at things with, with humility and and, and with a, a growth mindset to really kind of find uh, what is best for your situation and I think have looking at the world from that lens I think is the most important. Well, look, I know you're super busy and I'd like to thank you again so much for your time today. Absolutely. Pleasure was mine. Thank you, Dominic. In the next episode, we'll be meeting Adian founder, Peter Vanderdoos, to dive deep into how a European payments company took the world by storm. We are winning US business from US companies that do not have international volume with us. So that's a new stage where we are, as a company started in Europe, winning from US companies for pure US volume. And there's no other reason to work with us than quality of the product, quality of the service. You won't want to miss it, so see you next time. And if you want to learn more about US expansion in the meanwhile, check out our Destination USA guide, link in the episode description.